So we are right in the middle of a five-week series on the book of Job, where we're looking at why we face trials. And we saw in chapters 1 and 2 that Job was a blessed man. He had a beautiful family, 10 children, vast wealth, and most important, he was the most righteous man in all the world, Job chapter 1 tells us. And that's so important to understand because the reason God calls him righteous is because that means Job had come to the place where he had put his faith in what God would do through the Messiah, the future Messiah coming, dying on the cross, paying for sins, which means Job was completely forgiven for all of his sins through what the Messiah would do. He was loved by God, adopted into God's family, cared for by God. God had compassion for him. God delighted in him. This is Job. And God gives Job the honor and the joy of displaying to Satan all the angels and everybody who reads this book, displaying to, to the universe, really, the, the worth, the infinite worth of God. Job is going to have the privilege of proclaiming that God is so great, so glorious, that His love is so beautiful, that His presence is so satisfying, that when you have God, you don't need anything else because of who He is. That's what Job's going to be displaying and proclaiming. And so God gives Satan permission to bring trials to Job. So the Sabaeans steal all of Job's oxen, and lightning kills all of Job's sheep, and the Chaldeans steal all of Job's camels, and a massive windstorm kills all of Job's children. And then Satan brings these excruciating boils from head to toe upon Job's body. Trial after trial after heartbreaking trial. And what does Job do? Job sobs, weeps, grieves, as you can imagine, right? And, and Job worships God. So here's what we've seen so far in the book of Job. Chapters 1 and 2, God brings massive trials to righteous Job. Chapter 3 then, after weeks of suffering, Job starts to struggle. So Job struggles with whether his trials have any meaning or purpose. And then in Job chapters 4 through 31, Job's friends give their answer, and they're wrong. They wrongly say that these trials are punishments for Job's sins. Now next, in chapters 32 through 37, which we're going to cover tonight, we meet someone new named Elihu. So let's ask, why does the book of Job include Elihu? The reason I ask that is because some Bible students, some scholars, believe that Elihu and what he says is just as wrong as what Job's friends had said. And others say, no, Elihu speaks truth from God. So which is it? It's interesting, 25 years ago, roughly, 
Jan and I were visiting, we were on vacation, we visited John Piper's church in the U.S., and that Sunday morning he was preaching about Elihu. I'll never forget that sermon, and what I saw that Sunday morning and what I've seen in studying since has persuaded me that Elihu is speaking truth. Let me give you my reasons why. He's not like the three friends who are speaking falsehood. Elihu was speaking truth, which is going to pave the way then for the rest of the book and what God has to say. Here's the reasons I think Elihu was speaking the truth. Number one, at the end of the book of Job, God corrects both Job for what he said and Job's three friends for what they said. But even though Elihu talks for six chapters, God does not correct anything he says, even though he corrects what Job said wrong and what the friends said wrong. Second reason, Job strongly disagrees with each of his three friends, but he does not disagree with anything Elihu said. Third reason, Elihu sounds like a godly, humble man. He's a young man. It could have been a teenager. We don't know. Look, look at what Elihu says, chapter 32, 6 through 8. And Elihu, the son of Barachel the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. Those who are older, let them talk. But look at what he says next. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. Age can give people wisdom, but the power of the Holy Spirit in us is the ultimate source of wisdom. And then fourth, my fourth reason is because what Elihu teaches is taught throughout the rest of the Bible, as we're going to see tonight. So I think that what Elihu says here is truth. So what does Elihu teach? What does he teach Job? It's interesting. Elihu, for 24 chapters, had been quietly listening to Job's three friends and to Job himself. He heard their back and forth. He heard as it got a bit heated. And he heard Job say some things that are not true, like the fact that Job claimed to be without any sin and that Job thought God was treating him unjustly with hostility as his enemy. So Elihu corrects Job. That's where he starts. You can see this in Job 32, 8 through 12. Look at how Elihu corrects Job. Verse 8, he says, Surely you, Job, have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, now he quotes Job, you say, Job, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. And then still Job being, a, being quoted, Behold, he, God, finds occasion against me, Job. He, God, counts me, Job, as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. It's a long quote from Job there. And then Elihu wraps up what he says here, Behold, in this, Job, you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. So Job is correcting Elihu is correcting Job. 
First, he says, Job, it's wrong for you to claim that you are sinless. Now, we know from chapter 1 that he was the most righteous man in all the world, right? But that does not mean he was sinless. What that means is that every area of sin that he was aware of in his life, he was confessing, he was resisting, he was fighting. There was no area of sin he was holding to saying, mine, I'm going to hold on to this. He was battling every area of sin, and when he stumbled, he would confess to God. That's what it meant to be righteous. So he was righteous, but he was not sinless, and it was wrong for him to say that he was. And... It's wrong, Elihu says, for Job to say that God was counting him as his enemy. Because if Job is righteous and God is counting him as his enemy, that shows that God is unjust and unloving, which is completely wrong. And Elihu points it out to Job. Job, you're wrong. God has not been punishing you. He's not unjust. He's not unloving. So Elihu corrects Job. But that's not all that Elihu does. He teaches Job a crucial truth. He explains to Job one purpose of God that is always what God is doing in every trial we will ever face. Now, I want want us to get this tonight. This is so important to understand. Here's what Job says, and I'll show you where he says it. Excuse me, here's what Elihu says, and I'll show you where he says it. He says that when God brings us trials... One of his purposes, like the most important one we should focus on, is to purify us from sin so we will see God more clearly. One of God's purposes in every trial is to purify us from sin so we see him more clearly. That's our greatest joy ever. That's God's purpose. Now, I need to point out a couple things this does not mean. Because people do take this in some kind of strange directions. This does not mean that the more trials you have, that must mean you've got a lot of sin to be purified from. So the more trials somebody's going through, like, whoa, I mean, really sinning. That's not what it means. We've seen that in chapter 1 of Job, chapters 1 and 2. Job was the most righteous man in the whole world. And no one in the book of Job suffers anywhere near as much as Job does. Do you see that? So don't make the equation like, well, the more suffering somebody has, that must mean they really have a lot of sin they need to be purified from. That's not how God works. Are we clear? Church, are we clear? This is really important to get. And yet God's purpose is to purify us from sin because we all need to be purified from sin all the time, right? I mean, this side of heaven, we're never sinless. We're not talking about like one specific trial for one specific sin. Just always in us, there's this, I mean, everything is tinged with pride and impure motives, right? There's always sin in us. So we always need to be purified. We all always need to be purified from our sin. And so that's how Job is corrected by Elihu. So Elihu's point is that God in his love When he brings trials to his people, he's not punishing us. He's brought them to purify us from sin so that we will have even more of his presence, even more joy in his love, in his nearness, in his grace, in his beauty. Let me show you where Elihu says this. He explains this by describing two different trials that God brings people. 
just illustrations of all the different kinds of trials that can come, but two different ones he illustrates. The first is that God brings us dreams of warning that'll be, that are threatening to us. Look at Job 33, verses 13 through 18. Dreams of warning. So verse 13, Elihu says, Job, why do you contend against him, against God, saying, he will answer none of man's words? Elihu says, for God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. So God speaks, we don't hear. Here's one way God speaks, verse 15. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. So verse 16 shows that God brings us warning dreams to open our ears, terrify us, warn us, so that, as he says in verse 17, he can turn us aside from sin conceal pride from a man, which I think keeps, keeps somebody from pursuing pride, keeps pride from us. And notice God's overall goal in all of this. It's to keep our souls from the pit, to keep us from perishing, which is a picture of eternal judgment in hell. So this is God's loving purpose, to warn us so that we, we, we steer clear, we steer clear of, of sin so that we will not walk the pathway towards eternal destruction in hell. Now, just take a little break here for a moment, okay, pause, put a little bookmark there. This can be very much understood, misunderstood because of, of man-made religion. Man-made religions hear that, okay, we've got to stay away from sin so we don't go to hell. Man-made religions hear that and think, okay, so the way I avoid hell is by working really hard not to sin. If I can just try hard enough not to sin, then I won't go to hell and I'll earn heaven. That is not what Elihu was saying. That's not what's taught in the Bible. The only way to avoid hell, we've been celebrating this with all the songs we've been singing tonight. The only way, and it's a beautiful way, it's an all-powerful way that we can avoid hell is by trusting Jesus Christ, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, who has come because Jesus was punished for all the sins of everyone who will put their trust in Him. He bore the punishment of hell in the place of everyone who will put their trust in Him. So because Jesus did that, when you put your trust in Him, you are forgiven for all your sin. You are reconciled to God. You know His beauty in your heart and His presence in your life and His love in your soul. You know God and God's presence and love and joy in your heart is so powerful that you want to keep pursuing more and more and more of Him, which is why you want to stay away from sin, which takes you further and further away from Him. And so your life is changed, but it's not that you earn heaven by trying to be good enough or avoid sin, but that's the outflow of a heart that's received all that God has for us. Is that clear? So please, no one here walk away thinking that the way you stay away from hell is by trying really hard not to sin. We, we come to Christ and say, I trust you. Assure me afresh of forgiveness. Fill me with your presence. And then our lives are changed more and more and more. That's how it works. 
But that's the first example Elihu gives, warning dreams where God is coming to us and he's, he's pulling us back, purifying us from sin, keeping us from sin. That's the first example. Second example involves God bringing sickness to us. Verses 19 through 28. Verse 19, Elihu says, man is also... So this is another way God speaks to us. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. This is an example of God bringing terrible sickness to someone. Keep reading. This is amazing, these next verses. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousands, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful, this angel mediator is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit, I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Now pause there. There's such important verses here. Notice that word ransom in verse 24. That word is often used to describe <clears throat> the burnt offerings in the Old Testament, which were a picture of Jesus' death on the cross, which would purchase payment, ransom for our sins. That word ransom is very important here. The fact that this person needs a ransom sounds to me like he's not yet been saved. That's the picture of what's going on here. God is mercifully bringing somebody sickness to wake him up so that he'll be saved. Notice also that word mediator. Who's the mediator between God and man? The man Christ Jesus, pastoral epistles in the New Testament. Notice also that that word angel can mean messenger. Okay, so I'll grant these verses are not easy to figure out what's going on, but here's what I'm thinking maybe it is. It's hard to be sure, but I wonder if this isn't a picture, this angel, this messenger, this mediator, talking about a ransom, if it's a picture of Jesus, the, the Messiah in the Old Testament. So imagine it like this. You're very sick. You're not a believer not forgiven, very sick, and someone, maybe Jesus, comes to you, says, there's a ransom for your sins. There's a payment for all of your sins, all of them. It's found in the Messiah. It's found in Jesus Christ, what he would do, what he has done as the Messiah dying on the cross. So even though you've sinned, you don't need to go down into the pit for judgments. You don't, there's a ransom available for you. And then verse 26, so, the, so you hear that message, then verse 26, then you, man, praise to God, and God accepts him. Man sees God's face with a shout of joy, yes, and God restores man to his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Wow! 
So you go from this person just like shrinking up with sickness and illness, right? To shouting and singing, I'm saved, I'm redeemed, I'm forgiven. I've seen God. That's what God does. Again, purifying from sin, pulling away from sin, convicting of sin, pointing to Christ so that we are seeing him all the more clearly. This is another example of a trial. And notice, says this, both of these examples, trials are not punishment. There are times where God punishes unbelievers with trials, but that's not what he's being talked about here. And he never punishes believers with trials. We're never punished. Trials have another purpose. This is an expression of God's love and mercy. It sounds like this person needs to be saved. And when he hears about this ransom, turns from his sin, prays in confession and faith, God accepts him. And in this case, God heals him. And what's best of all, this person sees God's face. Sees his face. Has the joy of seeing the light of God's glory in the Messiah, in Christ. And he knows he's been saved and that forever he's going to be with God. So this is a beautiful act of mercy. The sickness sounds, wow, really intense, but look at the results. Salvation, transformation. And then in verses 29 through 30, Elihu summarizes the point of these two illustrations. He says, behold, Job, God does all these things. Twice, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be lighted with the light of life. So here's what, here's what Elihu is saying to Job. Job, remember with your three friends, you said you were without sin? You're not without sin, Job. None of us is. We all need to have our hearts purified more and more and more from sin so we can see God more and more and more clearly and experience his presence and his love and his glory more and more and more powerfully. And Job, you said God was treating you as his enemy. God has not been treating you as his enemy. God has been lovingly, kindly giving you trials by which he will purify, is purifying your heart from sin, so you will have even more joy in him, Job. So here's our picture of the book of Job up to this point. Let's see where we've come. We already talked about chapters 1 and 2, chapter 3. Remember chapter 4, verse 31, the three friends, they wrongly say that these trials are punishment for Job's hidden sins. And in chapter 32 through 37, Elihu says that God brings trials to purify us from sin so we can see him more clearly. Not punishment for Job's hidden sins, gracious, loving, merciful means of Job being further purified so that he can see God more clearly. That's what's going on here. Now, let me just say this again, because I've seen too many people really deeply troubled by, by this teaching. Does this mean that the more you suffer, the more you must have seen you need to be refined from? No. It's not what it means. Let me say it again. Job was the most righteous man in the whole world. And nobody suffers in this book like Job does. So disengage that supposed mathematical equation in your mind. It's not there. It's not there. 
Nor does this mean that every trial is targeting some specific sin. That's not how it works. We all have sin in general. We need to be purified from more and more and more. We will until heaven. What this means is that God, in His love, brings us trials to purify us because the result of that is going to be more joy in God, more nearness with Christ, more experience of His beauty and His presence. And He is the greatest treasure of all, which means He's, he's worth it all. That's what God does. There's other purposes that God has for trials, but this is the one that the Bible tells us to focus on the most because this is the one we know is always the case. We can guess and wonder about others. This should be our focus. This is where strength is found. This is where hope is found. This is where comfort is found. This is where God is found in the midst of our trials. And this is a crucial point for us to get. Massively important truth in the book of Job. So I thought it'd be helpful to ask at this point, where else is this taught in God's word? And I want to give you one other passage to illustrate it, just to kind of strengthen your conviction that this is really what the Bible teaches. Look at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Where else is this taught in God's Word? It's taught in many passages. Let me just show you this one in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. I would encourage you to memorize these verses. They're so important. Look at what James writes. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So James is talking about all the different kinds of trials and suffering that we experience. And let's understand, we are talking in some cases, believers go through terrible, terrible trials. This isn't glib. This isn't paced on a smile. This can be through tears and sorrow. But the truth is, through those tears, we have every reason Every reason to count it all joy, my brothers, sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, why joy? Verse 3, there's a reason. For you know that the testing of your faith, now that word testing has in its meaning refining, purifying, like you take gold, which isn't perfectly pure yet, and you would put it in the cauldron, and you would test it, refine it, purify it, scoop the other stuff off the top, and what ends up happening is the gold becomes more pure as a result, more refined as a result. That's the word that's being used here. So the reason we count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds is because we know that they are going to be testing our faith, refining our faith, purifying our faith, purifying us from sin and belief, and that will produce steadfastness. So you'll be more steadfast as a result. You'll be walking the, the, the narrow path with more strength and confidence and faith and buoyancy. You'll be moving along. The path of heaven awaits you. More joy on the path now. More joy in God forever. So you know that the purifying of your faith through testing produces steadfastness. And steadfastness will have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing, which is a description of heaven. That's heaven there. So that's what James is teaching. And notice in the middle of verse 3, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We count all trials as joy because we know that God has brought them to purify our faith 
so that we will have even more joy in God now and in heaven when we will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the purpose for trials. It's the main purpose. Not the only purpose, but it's the main purpose. So think to yourself, what do you do to comfort yourself when you face trials? I, I, too often, I have in the past, and, and I hear people, and when trials come, we say, well, it could have been worse. But let me encourage you, that, that is, the, the Bible never gives that as a reason why we should be comforted. And if you think about it, it's not, a, not very comforting, right? I mean, Job, he, I mean, he could have also had his, both of his legs amputated. It could have been worse. Well, yes. Listen, God has much more powerful reasons for us to be encouraged and rejoicing in trials than it could have been worse. So just, let's just take that one out of our minds, okay? Just wash that away from us. That's not how we comfort ourselves. So James is saying the same thing as Elihu does here. Same thing. One purpose for all of our trials is to purify us from sin so that we will have even more of God in this life and in the life to come. Another way we shouldn't try to comfort ourselves is by saying, well, I'm going to get some better earthly good out of this. Isn't that what God says somewhere? More earthly comforts, whatever, riches, whatever, as a result of this trial? No. God never promises that. I mean, remember when Stephen was stoned to death? There was no earthly riches at the end of that stoning. There was something far better. The glory of Christ being with his Savior. And even if he didn't go to heaven, it's far better because he will have more of the Lord in this life. That's what the Lord promises. So let's focus on what he does promise, more of him as the outcome of every trial. So, God's main purpose for every trial is to purify our faith, purify us from sin, so that we will have more of Him, behold more of His glory in Christ, know more of His beauty and His peace and His presence in our lives. Now, that does not happen automatically as a result of trials. It's not that well, I'm going through a trial, so I'm really glad that's going to happen. There's something we must do to have that happen. You can see this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. We need to look on the things that are unseen, not the things that are seen. And that way our momentary light afflictions will produce an eternal weight of glory for us far beyond all comparison. There's something we need to do. And let me, I want to illustrate this for you. I heard this from a pastor many years ago, and this illustration has just stuck with me. I, I hope it's it's half as helpful for you as it's been for me, but it's been so helpful for me. Think about it like this. How many of you have ever, ever gone uh, fishing off of a pier that's stretching out like over the ocean? Any, any fishermen here? Or maybe over a lake? Maybe not. Okay, one person. Okay, two. Okay, so a pier is stretching out over the ocean, and it's, got, it's resting on wooden pilings, right? You know, you know what... There it is right there. Okay, good. So you got wooden pilings up here. Now, your life is like that pier in this way. You are resting on various pilings. You're, you're resting your security and your joy on things like your career and your health and your friends and, and other things. So 
There's your life like a pier stretching out over the ocean and you're resting on various wooden pilings. Now the problem with those wooden pilings is that they're in the water and they tend to rot over time. Or little worms from, this, from, the, from the sand in the, in the ocean will start to eat away at that, at that wood. They rot and, and, and they'll start to sag. They'll start to, oh. And so that's, that's why we are, are, are we're resting on career or friends or health and, and we can start to feel insecure and fearful and worried and empty, right? That was our lives before we met the Lord, just going from one insecurity to another, one fear to another, one worry to another, because these wooden pilings are, are decomposing, they're, they're rotting. Now, one day somebody came to you and they shared with you about Jesus Christ, the super piling. Jesus is the super piling, and this is massive, concrete, rock-solid piling. And they say, listen, your life was meant to be resting upon Jesus. He will forgive you for all your sins as you turn to Him and trust Him. You can rest everything on Him. He will never rot. He will never decompose. Little ocean worms won't eat away at Him. He'll always be there rock solid. And so you think, yes, Jesus, look at who He is. Look at what He's done. And so you, you, rest, you welcome Him to come under and, and you rest your peer on Him. And oh, glory, this is rock solid strong. Are you tracking with me so far? Now, we still have those other pilings there, right? We still have some security resting on, on our health, don't we? Some on our friends, right? Some on our career, other things like that. We still have those. And to the extent that we are resting our security, our joy, our future on those, our faith is not as pure as it could be. And we're not experiencing the Lord as beautifully and powerfully as we could be. And that's true of all of us this side of heaven, right? None of us ever gets free of every other piling. That's where we are, though. Now, what does God do in His love and His mercy? He sends big ocean waves coming in. California, we call them the, the, the winter north swells. And they would just hit up against these piers. And, and He does that. These are trials, right? The, the ocean waves are big trials. And they will shake some of our pilings. That's what will happen. They'll shake some of our pilings. And so... For example, maybe you develop a health problem. Well, God is allowing that to shake the piling of health. It's like, oh, that's right. This is not worth resting my future, my joy, my security in because there's no promise that I'm going to have health forever. Or maybe there's rumors of layoffs coming, dis, uh, redundancies coming at your work. Ah, big wave, <laughs> shaking that career trial. Okay, all right, that's true. That's, that's not worth resting my security and my joy and my future and my peace in. Or maybe you hear that your best friend here in Abu Dhabi is going to be moving back to their, to their home country. Oh, how hard. Isn't that hard when that happens? Friends here we love. But see, God's allowing that, shaking that piling of friendship. That's, we love friends, but, but, but don't rest your security, your future, your joy on friends. We love friends. They're a gift from God, but Jesus is the super piling. See how that works? That's what trials do. So, what should we do when trials come? We should recognize what piling is being shaken now. Okay, health is being shaken. Career is being shaken. I need to see, Lord, help me to see more clearly. That piling is not the super piling. You, your son Jesus, is the super piling. And so what we should do is we should lift our security and our joy off of that other piling and rest it all the more upon Jesus. 
And when you do that, your faith has been refined. You're being purified from sin. And the fact that your faith is more refined, the fact that you're more purified now, means you'll be experiencing more of the presence of the Lord. You'll be seeing Him more clearly. You'll be experiencing His peace more powerfully, His beauty filling your soul. That's what happens. We need to lift our trust and security off those other pilings and set them all the more on Christ. See how that works? That's why God allows these waves to come. And it's a gift from God to have more and more of our security, our joy, our future resting upon Christ. That is a gift because, oh, then we are secure, we are at peace, we see Him, we love Him, we're filled with Him. It's a gift. Now, what happens, here's a little quiz, okay? What happens if the waves come, the other pilings get shaken, Jesus isn't shaken, the others are all shaken, but instead of learning from that and shifting our faith from the other pilings and putting it more upon Jesus, what if instead we just sit back and grumble? How much is our faith getting refined then? Answer, none. Right? None. If we just sit back and complain, there's no refining going on. We're missing the whole point, missing the benefit of the, of the trial. Or what if, what if instead of maybe grumbling, or maybe we do, maybe what if we complain against God? What if we get angry against God? No refining is going to take place. Or what if we just binge on Netflix, drown our sorrows, and no refining is taking place? Do you see that? There's something we must do when trials come. Recognize those are temporary. Those are beautiful gifts from God in many cases, but Jesus is the superpiling. I want to lift my trust, my security, seeking my satisfaction from those things and putting it upon Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a prayerful act that we do, and as a result of that, we are purified and we are refined. Does that make sense? Church, this is so important. I would encourage you, do that whenever a trial comes. Take some time, just pray, open up your Bible, see who Jesus is, read about the super piling, be reminded that the other pilings are temporary, and just prayerfully say, Lord, Jesus, I want to put my trust all the more upon you. Take it off of that thing and put it all the more upon you. Oh, it'll be powerful. Don't waste any trial. Trials are God's gift to you of refining, of purifying, so that you can have more of Him. Now, let me tell you how Johnny Erickson has experienced this. Most of you have heard of Johnny Erickson. 50, rough, 50 years ago, approximately, Teenager in the U.S., dove into a lake, hit the bottom with her head, broke her neck, and ever since she's been uh, completely paralyzed from the neck down. So just imagine, 50 years paralyzed from the neck down. Now hundreds and thousands of people have prayed for her healing. It's a good thing. We love her. But in this case, in God's mercy and love, he has not healed her. He still could, but for 50 years he has not at least. And the reason, I mean, God could have healed her, and he often heals people. We love to pray for the sick here. But this time, God has chosen to, to give her the gift, the even greater gift of more and more and more purification purifying her more and more of sin so she can know Jesus all the more deeply. Now, does 
The fact that she's been paralyzed for 50 years means she must have really had a lot of sin to be purified from. That's not what it means. She's probably just another Job, one of the most righteous women in all the world. Right? So are we getting that? That's important, so important. But God has been giving her the gift of this paralysis so that she could be purified more and more and more, so that she could have more and more and more of Him. Here's how she describes that. This is amazing. She wrote this article a few years ago. She said, the process is difficult. She's talking about the whole, I mean, just she's in a wheelchair. She's got to be carried into bed. She's got to be clothed. She's got to be bathed. She's got to be fed. She says, the process is difficult. That's a massive understatement, isn't it? The process is difficult, but I don't think you could find a happier follower of Jesus than me. Amazing. The more my paralysis helps me get disentangled from sin, the more joy bubbles up from within. Let me read that again. It's so, it's, wow, yes. The more my paralysis helps me get disentangled from sin, the more joy bubbles up from within. I can't tell you how many nights I have lain in bed, unable to move, stiff with pain, and have whispered near tears, Oh, Jesus, I am so happy, so very happy in you. She's tasted and she wouldn't trade joy in Jesus for a fully functioning body for anything. You've tasted Jesus. You know that's true. Let every trial purify you further from the sins. So you can experience more and more and more of Christ. Don't waste any trial. Take advantage of every one. Lift your trust off those other pilings Put it all the more upon the superpiling. Let it disentangle you from sin so that you'll experience more and more and more of our Savior. Let's stand. I want to pray for us. Thank you, Father, for Elihu, this young man who by the Holy Spirit is speaking such wisdom Lord, I pray for those right now here who are in the midst of great trials. Oh, Lord, sustain them, comfort them, strengthen them, meet them as you bless them with this purifying work to give them even more of Christ. And Lord, shape all of our thinking to be more biblical in the way we see and understand and respond to trials, I pray, for the glory of our Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.